What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Fast Track, formerly known as Pave the Way Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Helbeck, and on this show, you are gonna learn exactly how to be successful as a real estate investor. It doesn't matter if you're brand new or if you've done dozens and dozens of deals. This is a podcast you're gonna be able to listen to that's gonna give you actionable, specific advice on how to be successful within real estate investing. I'm gonna interview top-notch real estate investors each and every week, and there's also gonna be some content that is just gonna be me telling you exactly about my journey and how I've went from a broke kid starting out to a million dollar real estate investor. So if you wanna learn how to be successful investing in real estate, this is the show to listen to, and I'm looking forward to being able to serve you at a high level. All right, Aaron, welcome back to the pod, my buddy. It's been a while since we last did an interview, so your business has changed a lot. Last time we interviewed you, we kind of got your backstory, how you got into real estate, what your business looked like back then. Like, what has changed since that last interview? It was probably about a year and a half, two years ago. So like, where is your business now? And then let's just start unpacking the reality of being a real operator in a tough market like San Antonio. Yeah, for sure. So man, well, thanks for having me back. I can't remember when that was, probably two, two and a half years ago. So business today, we're probably doing eight to 10 to 12 deals a month. I think July, we did 11. August, we just did 13, which for us getting kind of over that hump of 10 has kind of been, we've been right there for a few months. And now we're kind of like over that. And I think we'll consistently be there. So that is what our deal flow looks like. And we pretty much, we contract it, we buy it unless there's a title issue. So if we say we've contracted 13 deals, we're buying 13 deals. We're not like you know, closing on 20% of those or, you know, whatever you see. Really? People team, talk about that? I didn't know that. There's no way. Yeah. When you see, yeah, it's always a red flag when you see people start talking about contracts and not deals. So my team, so we have me and my business partner, and then we have a local lead manager and two acquisitions people. We still run 90 plus percent of our appointments in person. If stuff's remote, we'll kind of screen it a little more or, you know, we'll buy it sight unseen or whatever. Other than that, you know, we're we're very heavy on in-person appointments. Yeah, and that's kind of what what today looks like. So my first question is are you are you actually wholetailing these properties or rehabbing them or are you assigning half of these? Because that's a lot of volume to, to be closing on. Oh man, that's a great question. So we are we're starting to assign more. We don't like assigning stuff, which you're probably similar in that. We don't really like wholesaling. So we kind of have a few people we you know know and trust that it's not even really about squeezing the biggest fee out of it as it is, hey, what's going to be easy and reliable and less of a pain in the ass for me. But I mean, a lot of these, we, you know, we are closing, we are flipping or wholetailing. So, but as, as volume grows, you, you just kind of can't do that. Or we're, you know, figuring out that new capacity with, you know, finding more private money and all those things to reach that capacity when you're used to this and then you're trying to get here. So we're wholesaling more now. And I think we will in the future, just we're trying to get more cash heavy as we don't know what's happening with the market. So I think we'll wholesale more. Yeah, but that makes we, sense. we flip a lot. We wholesale a lot. Are you using hard money to fund all your deals? Or are you going like half private, half hard money? Because that capital on 10 houses a month is, is you know, adds Yeah, up. so yeah, it's a mixture. I would say we're probably like 60% private and then, you know, 40 or so hard money. Okay, that's pretty good. So you're, you're are you, when you raising, so this is what I do at least, like I'm either going to go 100% private money and the lender will fund everything for the most part. If I get hard money, I put my money into the hard money. Like if they do like 90%, I'll just put the 10% of my own money in and then I'll pay for the rehab out of pocket usually. I've never done like the, let me get the hard money for the bulk of the purchase and then I'll have a private lender come in on like a second deed of trust. 
I've just never done that. I'm not saying it's the right or wrong thing. I've just felt like when I've offered private money to people in the past, like the main selling point was they have a first mortgage on it and there's no lien behind them. So are you guys coming out of pocket when you get hard money or are you guys doing the gap scenario where you bring a lender in for 50, 60 grand and they cover the, you know, the 10% plus? Yeah. Yeah, we'll do both. Now we normally bring, we'll bring a lender in on, on a second at that like 20 to 30, 40,000. Yeah. It depends, right? So I don't like doing that with lenders we've never worked with before. Obviously, they're less secure, right? It's people we know, we've done a ton of deals with, they trust us, they have lots of money out with us and they they know how we are as operators, so it's fine. I don't like love it as a lender, but... I guess that to me that looks different at thirty grand than it does, you know, two hundred thousand. Yeah, or exactly. Or you just made the point. Um, if it's thirty grand, it's nearly not a big deal. But I see people like in California, they'll they'll need a two hundred thousand dollar junior mortgage to cover their rehab plus their closing costs. And I'm like, yo, this investor is putting up two hundred k in a second position, and the market in San Diego can drop quickly because of the prices. I'm like, uh. I don't know about that. I've done the the second. I've done the second position mortgage before with like fifty k. And yeah. I know, and it's like, it's easy. You can always pay them back worst case scenario, but I see a lot of people, you know, getting in over their skis, as they say, and they're borrowing hundreds, yeah. of, hundreds, of, hundreds of thousands. And I'm like, I don't know about that. But if you're like, I always say like with private money too, it's like, if you're buying a good property at the right price, then you're taking most of the risk off the table. The only time you're really getting into bad projects, at least like when I talk to new people, is like, if you're buying a deal that like might make 30 grand if everything goes well, right? And you're borrowing money for that, like that's where I kind of get a little skittish. Cause I always even say like, if it's a tight deal, but I still want to buy it and I can't assign it for some reason, usually because of the numbers, I'll get a hard money lender to fund it and I'll just take the risk with my own cash. But I see a lot of investors, they, I just made a video about this. They get so deal horny like they'll do anything to get a property. And I'm like, dude, no deal is better than a bad deal. Like if you're, if you get involved, like I have one right now where I bought the house, I shouldn't have bought it. I'm going to lose on it. I should have just said no to that. Like it was an easy decision to say, no, it was listed on the market. The numbers were tight. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of variables I didn't know about. And it's like, shame on me for buying that property. And now with the way the market is and with the higher interest rates, you know, I'm saying no to a lot more properties and I don't care because I'd rather say no to that deal. Maybe it makes money versus getting involved in a bad project. And now I have to, you know, take that project all the way to the finish line to either work for free or lose money. I've just done that enough times at this point to where I know it's not worth it. Yeah. Bad deals can, can freaking kill you. We just had one we lost probably like 60 grand on. What happened there? But oh, my Sharon. <laughs> yeah. So, well, so back to the, back to the lender thing real quick, then I'll get into that deal. So our thing is always like, man, you're, your loan's as good as the operator, right? Like we're, you know, our big thing is like, it doesn't matter if we make money or not. Like you're getting your, you're getting whatever paid back. We're not asking you to discount things, you know, but you'll see like, you'll see people that are like, well, if like, if you get upside down, just like let it go to foreclosure, let, like <laughs> declare bankruptcy, do, you know, do all these things. And I'm like, no, like no. those aren't the people you lend to. So, cause I had some friends recently that wanted to like lend money and they're like, well, like, is this like secure? I'm like, well, I'm going to tell you yes, but I'll also like, it depends on who you're working with. Anyway, so back to this deal we lost a lot of money on. So it was five acres and kind of like a higher end subdivision, like, you know, probably 1.2 to like almost $2 million houses. Oh, damn. We bought the thing in like April or May of last year. We bought it for two two fifty. Is it just land? It's, no, there's no house. Just a lot, right? Five acre lot. Okay. Lots were selling. The lowest thing that I've sold in that neighborhood was like 350, 375. We had the thing assigned for like 80 grand. They bailed and we're like, whatever, we'll take it down. Like there's a ton of margin on this, right? 
Yeah. So we take this lot down, list it. It doesn't move. And we're kind of like accounting, like it'll take a few months to sell. Like it's kind of a niche thing. Right. And we had interest like, and it was never like the price was too high. It was just like, like we had people come in they're like, Hey, we'll give you like three thirty-five, And then they're like, no, nah, we actually decided on like the lot across the street or whatever. Right. Sure. So it was priced right. Interest was kind of like here and there, but then, then we hit like May, June, July of last year when like interest rates went crazy. No one's freaking doing new builds at like a million plus in a high end subdivision. And we like, dude, we just freaking sat on this thing. And then I had it for a while. I think I had it listed myself, which I don't ever do that. And then I had a buddy list it. And then I hit up this like luxury agent who was like, oh, I can sell anything. Like, and I'm like, cool, well, you're a luxury agent. Like, like bring your drone out there, like sell it, you know, do whatever you need to do. I don't know. But if like, that's what you do, like you should have buyers, right? So like he listed for a while and it was like, it just didn't, it just didn't move. Right. Yeah. So we're eventually at the point where like, we are just like, whatever, we're just going to pay this thing off. Forget we own it. And in like five years, we'll like sell it for like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Forget about it. Four or yeah. 500 grand. And it'll be really great. Right. Like, yeah, whatever. And then we eventually like, like we're about to pull it off and pay it off. And we got an offer that like, we essentially got our, like, we didn't have to bring money to closing. Yeah. But we also put like 15 grand, 15 grand down when we bought it. We paid a hard money loan for a year. Yeah. And then yeah. we cashed that guy out and put a private lender on it and paid him for three or four months and all the like points and interest and whatever. So it's like, it was one of those, it was like a slow burn where like, we weren't like, you don't really feel it. Yeah. You don't really feel 60 it. Grand. But we still lost it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know um, how that is. Oh, for sure. Jesus. Yeah. So you're like, you look back at it and you're like, well, it's nice. It's gone. But like, then you're like, oh, shit, I've been paying for this for 18 months at like two grand or 2,500 or whatever a month. And then we put money down to buy it. And then we never paid the property taxes on it because we didn't plan on owning yeah. it for years. So we'd like pay those. Like You don't realize you're losing money until it closes and you look at the P&L. But like, it doesn't burn that bad because you spent that money years ago or a year ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you don't really, you forget yeah, about so it. We, yeah. Man, we've had some of those turds and like, they're almost all gone. It doesn't take many of those where you're like, I'm buying deeper and we're, we're getting a lot stricter on what we're buying. But 100%, dude, I, that, I've done bad deals. It's, it's either the area wasn't an area I was familiar with, or the asset wasn't something I was familiar with. Like it was a mixed use building, this property in Pennsylvania, you bought the land. I think as entrepreneurs, when we get the shiny object or we see an opportunity, like, we're like, oh man, like, oh, if I can flip houses, I can certainly flip land. And if the market didn't turn, you would have made money on that for sure. Right. But like, oh, yeah. you can't control the market taking shit. Like I remember that's long story short, I had a contract on a deal in February of 2022. So the market was still, it was the highest it's ever been at that point. And the property had to go through probate and this is out here in California. And this, the brother came out of the woodworks and sued the sister and tied up the whole deal. So by the time it was like able to sell, the market dropped like by 15, 20% in San Diego from the peak. And then my 80K assignment that I thought I was going to make turned into nothing. I assigned it basically for free. And then that buyer bailed, but he happened to own an escrow company. So he kind of gave me an attorney who I had to get involved to pay like two grand to, to then get my 20 grand back. So I ended up losing like 2000, but it's like a lot of people, like at least you and me, I mean, I, I wasn't around in 2008, right? So like, this is the first like little correction I've seen and you can feel it. I mean, you can really feel it at least like back last year, like when the, the May or June hit, I had another flip out here that it, it still sold like right before the rates like shot up. And it was scary. Cause like, you know, the thing that people don't realize is like, if you're buying a $600,000 house and you have a 6% interest rate, 
you know, a year and a half before that, you were buying a six hundred thousand dollar house with three percent interest rate, and that three percent on six hundred thousand is substantial if you look at an am amor am schedule. I just call I don't know how to say amortization, yep. so it's like yeah, you know, there you go. Yeah, an amortization schedule. So my next kind of segment I want to go down here is you've you've scaled the business up to to do real volume now in a tough market. So obviously everyone loves to talk about marketing, what they're doing. What are like the top two or three channels that are just producing a good return for you that's allowed you to like grow your business to where you're doing the 10 to 15 deals a month? Yeah. So right now, honestly, the internet stuff's been really good for us. You know, we we spend a lot on pay-per-click and SEO and you know, all that stuff. That's been really good. We do TV ads. They've been kind of traditionally, they've been really good deals for us, not the highest volume as far as like leads and stuff. That's been real slow lately. And then mail is pretty consistent for us. Yeah, it, it always is. Yeah. So, I mean, we've gotten better at mail, right? So, we were at the beginning of the year, we kind of just said, hey, let's just mail like anyone with equity. And that's like in a decently competitive market that's just like lighting money on fire. <laughs> like we literally were like put all these people on these like six or seven letter or postcard or whatever sequences. And we were like three or four months in and we're like, we barely get calls from this. We haven't gotten a deal from it. And it's just like, okay, we're not doing that. So then like I sat down and really got more targeted with what we're mailing and you know, all that stuff. And, and it's gotten a lot better for us. Interesting. But yeah, mail's, mail's consistent. Hey, I got we a question on mail stuff. for you. I got a question. Yeah. So have you ever mailed the Audanic list before? I have not. I just bought it the other day in Reno. So I'm excited to see the results, but I was on the fence about buying it for years. Reno, and, Nevada, you're there yeah, now? I'm moving. To okay. Reno. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we're going to start, we're going to start marketing there. That, that market is a gold mine and I, we're already starting to get leads there. Like just from texting and doing like some prop stream mailers and list source yeah. mailers. Yeah. It's definitely competitive, but it's not like Dallas competitive from what I can see already. It's expensive based on like what you'd think like Reno is a kind of like a city nobody knows about, but it is the 600 K houses are not abnormal. I just bought that list. So I'm going to be excited to share you the results we're getting from that. And then another list that I would look into, and nobody talks about this is there's a company called lead vine, like vine on a tree. And mm -hmm. they have pretty good niche data that we've made a pretty good return on. So like, they don't give you a lot of records, but like the tax list has mailed, we've mailed that and we've and texted that and we've got really good results. And then same thing with, they call it the DPO dead property owner, like pre-probate list that's been banging. Gotcha. And then the probate list has been pretty good for us. So if you're mailing niche lists, I found these guys have pretty good data. Like I can't say it's anything that's going to blow the doors off, but I remember they made a pretty big claim and I was a little skeptical, but once I mailed it, I was like, oh, these guys, these guys know what they're talking about. Our, so uh, we've been doing pre-probates for shoot, probably two years now. Yeah. yeah. Those, those do well. You know, it's not always like, you know, it doesn't hit like crazy well, but like someone calls in, they inherited a house, like they're going to sell it and they're likely going to sell it to an investor, you know? So it's just like yeah. the likelihood of them selling to us or someone like us is just a lot higher. So we do well on that. And then... Honestly, I just kind of get creative. Like I'll go in our local, local Facebook wholesaling groups and I'm like, cool. What do I never see people selling? So like recently we mailed condos and we bought I condos and townhomes and bought love them. three of them off of like 5,000 pieces or something, you know? So it's like, you can go in your Facebook groups and you're like, cool. Either like no one like mails these or doesn't know what to do with them, or they probably just don't mail them, you know? So you can kind of, you know, look around and see what, what people aren't selling. And then like between that and like, we're big on mobile homes and like some of the mobile home responses we get are like very, very clearly, like you've never been mailed before. Like we had a lady just straight up deed us a mobile home for free and was like, thanked us, like brought our, like brought our lead manager, like 
homemade baklava at closing and was just like, thank you so much. You know, now we're under contract to sell it for like 70 grand. So if you, I mean, you can find the things that no one's hitting, which exist in every market. You you just have to get creative about it. Percent, dude. And the you can like, tell cool. from responses when people call in like, oh, you haven't been mailed before. <laughs> you oh, know, dude, it's you like, know uh, right away. Yeah. It's, it's like, oh, like I can sell my house to someone like <laughs> cash yeah. offer. I've never heard of this before. Tell me more. Yeah, about it's it. a lot different than the like I'm calling everyone in town and like oh, shopping everyone. You're like, you know, it's just it just is different. So, you know, we get pretty creative on, you know, kind of what we mail and try to, you know, whether it's, hey, go on the outskirts a little bit or, you know, go different neighborhoods or whatever. But you can kind of like like in San Antonio, I think there's a lot of opportunity in, you know, higher end price points because like most people aren't flipping houses over five, six hundred grand. Yeah. But like there's they still need to sell, you know, and like we just bought one for like six ten that is probably worth almost a million. And we're just gonna list for like eight hundred, yeah. you know. So it's like, you know, there's stuff like that that, you know, there's people still need options and you know the solutions we provide you know they're just not being hit up all the time so you know, we try to get creative on on some of that stuff dude you just said so many golden nuggets there because the condo thing nobody does understands this like the, most of the rentals i have which isn't a ton of them they're fucking condos because there's less competition it's easy to rent them it's like an apartment it's easy to comp them as long as the hoa isn't a pain in the ass i've always set, found like condos are and you could get them so much cheaper than houses it's like crazy like and i i can just buy but they're them also anything. they're also tricky like the requirements for if they're financeable and all of that yes. or like you know cuz fha is like really looking into the health of the of the hoa making sure they have money make sure they pay their bills make sure people pay the hoa like all these requirements for making sure they're whatever percent's occupied they don't want one person owning more than x all number the units of and then it turns like, into a monopoly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, there's, yeah. So there's all those kind of like tricky things where it's like, I mean, I bought one a few years ago, not knowing any of this existed and was just like, oh, it's a deal. Like, and then like it ended up working out, but there were a lot of ways it wouldn't have. <laughs> there's just some like weird nuanced things. Like we have one right now that needs the foundation fix. And we're like, cool, like, do we fix the foundation or does our HOA? And I'm like, but I have all these like records of the HOA paying a foundation company. So I think we don't pay it. But, you know, then it's like, you know, getting like, you got to get the neighbors to sign off because it might screw up their fund. You know, it's just all these yeah, weird. Yeah, it's all hairy. Yeah. Just like different like things you're not used to, but it's all just part of like, cool, you know, figure out how to find the, you know, find a solution and create value. And exactly, you know, it's just part of the game. Yeah. The co- it's, it's interesting. Like there's, there's a little, there's definitely more red tape. So I've always said, like, if you're going to do a condo, you need to know that HOA because I have one I have right now. I've never seen it. I don't really plan to go there because it's a waste of time. It's like the HOA is 281 a month. They pay for everything. The guy pays me a little bit late every month, but that's fine. And like, it's just a money box. I call it the money box. Like it just, it, it was, I bought it for 46K, no financing. I just bought it outright. It rents for 12 New York. a month. Yeah, it's in New York. And buy a condo for 46 grand. 46 grand in Newburgh, New York. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's a one bed. It's pretty small. It's like 595 square. But like I'm look, I just looked at the numbers on and Brett went out and looked at it to make sure it wasn't like burned down. And it's it's terrible inside, but the guy like likes to stay there. He wants to stay there. So I looked at the math and I'm like, all right, I'm buying this for 46. By the time I pay my team and closing costs like 51K. That was I was I was out 51K. 
And the thing rents for twelve hundred a month. And when I rent, when I bought it originally, it was eleven hundred a month. I'm like, and it's in a good area, like where the like the values will go up. Like, and they've already bought it at a discount. I'm like, I'd rather have my money, some of my money, in this thing than in the bank. It's like I think the thing with like rentals, and I guess we'll transition to that because I know you've done some creative stuff. It's like if you look at like a rent, like I have a wholesale deal that's going out tomorrow morning. It's in Rockland County, New York. It's thirty five minutes from Manhattan. You buy it for one fifty from me. It rents for two thousand a month conservatively. And it's in a high demand, high growth area. Like it's very hard to lose in a scenario like that. And that's a condo, a one bed condo. It's like, I look at the numbers more with the condos. And as long as the HOA isn't too fucked up, like I usually just try yeah. to keep them as rentals because they're a lot less maintenance. Like I have a house and that one isn't terrible, but I have another property that is a very hands-on. I actually had to get a manager involved. It's like a townhouse with no HOA, which is kind of a double-edged sword because you're responsible for all these things now that the HOA would normally yeah. fix. I digress. You're in Texas, right? A lot of people listening are probably not in Texas. And I've just found that at least in San Antonio, there's a lot of like owner finance wrap strategies that go on there. And it seems like an area where it's much easier to do creative real estate versus a New Jersey or a New York or a San Diego. So have you had experience doing these wraparound deals? And if, if you have, what does that look like? Because I, I, I've i seen this and it, it really makes me question why the fuck I own rentals. Because I'm like, why the fuck would I do all this work and take all these calls and deal with the property manager to make $200 a month and then have to fix the hot water heater every year? It's just like, and then the wrap thing, it's like, it seems like it's it's the best thing I've ever seen, you know, from an outsider's view. We've done a few owner finance. What is an owner it's finance not- if, if, if people aren't familiar? Because it's not like a brand new, like beginner thing from what I've seen. Yeah. So in San Antonio, what it kind of looks like generally is, you know, most people that are there, if their strategy is doing owner finance deals, they're going to be exit price kind of sub 200. And then they are generally being sold to people who can't qualify for normal mortgages. So one of my good buddies here does a lot of owner finance and he's like, you know, they're super solid buyers. They just don't have your normal credit or whatever, you know, where they can just go get a loan. But, you know, he has people literally like show up at his office, like with down payments and like 50, 60 grand cash, like wads of $100 bills. So normally it's like, that's kind of the demographic. A lot of it's, you know, Spanish speaking. They have someone on staff that's like, sells all their deals that speak Spanish. You know, they sell stuff off like bandit signs and websites and stuff. It's not going kind of the traditional MLS route. We've just done some here and there on like, we have some lots, we have some houses, stuff we've owned either free and clear that we can get all of our money back on a down payment. But the people that do it here love it. I think it's challenging to get into because it either requires a ton of capital up front or, you know, private lenders that are willing to do long-term money at lower rates or establishing relationships with banks where they will refinance your notes, which isn't really a normal bank product, but, you know, they'll do over time if you have a relationship with them. So it's a thing you have to kind of build into. I think I don't think it's something that like, you know, you take a guru course and you're the, and you're the next guy. day. Yeah, you're getting a deal. And then there's, you know, there's different ways to do that, right? Like some people are like, hey, we completely fix up everything, sell it as, you know, almost a flip. Some people owner finance stuff like completely as is like, you know, nasty house will sell owner finance. It just kind of depends, you know, what your strategy is or what that looks like. But I mean, like right now, like me and my business partner met up with, you know, kind of older investor in town and they do a lot of owner finance. And he's like, perfect right now. Like as the market goes down, owner finance gets better. You know, your returns get better in that world where 
you know, it, it's just kind of a different strategy. We haven't gotten into a ton. Like it's something that, yeah, it's super appealing because it's like, especially here when our property taxes are high, like that's not going to impact your cash flow. It's just not something we have really like figured out or I guess put a ton of effort into like getting into yet. But it, I mean, here it's like, it's more seasoned people that have been doing this forever. They have their relationships and the the money and the bank relationships to really make it happen where it's, it's just a little messier to like kind of get into it, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, you have to, there's Dodd-Frank, there's mortgage restrictions. You got to really know what you're doing. Like, I'll give you an example. There's a guy I'm interviewing tomorrow. His name is Scott and he's out of Virginia and his strategy, I've studied what he's done and it's very, very appealing. So what he's doing, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's called the slow flip. So what he does is he goes out and finds properties, usually like on the East Coast in the non-New York areas and then in the Midwest. And he buys these houses for like 50K or less. Usually they're in like, iffy neighborhoods, but not war zones. He buys his 30 grand. He gets a private lender to fund the deal. This is the key. Five-year fully amortized, 12% mortgage. So he basically gets private money on the deal, five-year term, five-year AM schedule. So it's paid off in five years. And he sells the property for 80 grand on a contract for deed. So like the owner doesn't own the house until it's paid off. And then he collects this spread. So it's basically a big order of finance. But he's found that when he gets his private money for five years, the property doesn't make money for 60 months, which is five years of payments. But when that property gets paid off and the lender has their money back with the interest, the principal interest, now that I think it's like, he has like the numbers, it's like 875, comes in every month like clockwork. He doesn't have to worry about the taxes because it gets built into the payment. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. And I'm like, man, I did the math and I'm like, holy shit. Like, And you don't got to worry about the maintenance and the repairs, which kills the landlords usually. So that strategy really kind of, caught my attention because the name was interesting, like a slow flip. I've never heard of that. And then if you think about it, like if you're selling these properties now with like a 10% interest rate to a buyer for 30 years, I mean, you're going to make like $250,000 in like, if you count the interest. So there's so many ways in real estate that people make money. And I, I feel like sometimes I get stuck in this like fix and flip burr assignment box. And I'm like, man, there's so many other ways that we can all take our skill sets and use them and like have little side niche businesses. But then it's like, ah, you got to focus too. So I always say like, there's the reason people fail in real estate is because there's too many ways to succeed or whatever. I heard somebody say that one time, which is kind of true. So let's just get into now, where do you want to take Murphy Homebuyers? Because you guys have obviously grown it to a very high level now. Like what is the vision for you and your partner as you guys continue to grow this business? Yeah, great question. So we're trying to get it to, you know, we want to be doing like, I say 10 million a year in revenue. Jason and my partner will say five. We want it to spit off both to both of us a million net, right? So we're trying to grow towards that and kind of whatever that looks like. I want to start buying bigger stuff or, you know, chunks of houses, whatever. Like to get in some other markets. And then, dude, I don't know. I just want to work less. You work a lot now? Yes and no. I mean, honestly, it's great. I don't, I, bear, I rarely look at houses, but my goal is getting less involved. And, you know, we hired a business coach last year. And a lot of that's like, cool, if I can get this thing to run without me, I can actually sell it, you know, not just a high paying job at that point. So, you know, we're focused on building systems, you know, getting the right people in the right places. So, you know, getting someone who can kind of run things, it's not me. So I don't know. I don't know that we would sell it or what that looks like, but like the difference in like, if both of us are out of it, like we could sell it to someone. Yeah. I don't know if we will, asset. but yeah, exactly. So, you know, that's kind of the direction we're going of, 
you know, trying to responsibly scale and not get crazy and, you know, make wise decisions in a weird market and all that. Yeah, we're trying to grow this thing without like overdoing it and killing ourselves. So we'll see what that looks like. Yeah, I see a lot of people. We know a lot of this people and there's a lot of like they make these claims that nobody knows if they're true or not that they're doing like x amount of deals a month which could be true could be false and i've realized after getting to know some of these folks like just because you do x amount of like you know contracts a month like we started the pod with doesn't mean you're making that money i see people with a you know 60 percent contract fallout rates or whatever or 70 percent like the only thing that really matters is like what is your cost to get a deal like an actual deal what's the on the ad spend, like if your spend, if your overall return on ad spend is like five to one, that's pretty fucking good because that means you have enough margin in there, like minimum five to one, to where like you can be decently profitable because like your your marketing is producing a certain return, which is pretty much where your revenue is coming from, and then you have you can pay your team and you can still walk away with a reasonable net profit. And then the other thing that really gets us in trouble in New York and why we're trying to shift out of New York slowly is the, and this only really matters when you you have like real bills is our cash cycle. Our cash conversion cycle is so long in New York, even on wholesale deals, because there's attorneys involved and there's so many different parties with their hands out. Like, Dude, a- we talk about that like every week. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like 90 days for us. And I'm like, in Delaware, it's like 40. And I'm like, if we just put our resources here, we might not make as much, but we don't have to wait to get paid. I was reading Scaling Up last night. I read the chapter, or I skimmed the chapter on like cash. And like, I, I started to realize like all these big companies, like non-real estate related, usually in that book, if you can get your cash cycle by the time you spend money on anything, whether that's marketing or staff to return within like 20 or 30 days, like you have infinite you know resources to keep growing. But like I've found in our market, like I'm spending money in like January and that money's not coming back until, you know, like May or April. And the bills were due in January, February, and March. So there's always like this cash gap. And like a lot of times you don't feel it, but when you have a bad month or a bad quarter, you look look at the numbers and you're like, oh my God, the bills are due every 30 days, but the revenue lags so hard in our industry. So like it, it, it's hard for a new person to understand that because they want to get their first deal. But when you actually start like you growing the real business, like you look at these kind of numbers and it, it allows you to make good decisions. Because like, let's say there's a marketing channel and it's a great return, but the cash conversion cycle is like six months. It's a little more advanced, but I, I, people don't like look at this. And now I'm starting to see this as we're growing our company. And I'm like, man, like I got to make decisions based on our cash conversion cycle, not necessarily the return because it might make a good return. But if it takes twice as long to convert that deal, like that's a problem, you know, bro. We had an assignment this week that closed $51,000 assignment. We assigned it three months ago and the probate's finally done. Right. So, but yeah, let's, let's dig into that more. Cause I, that's something that we like in this market. Now we have three or four flips on the market that are priced under the competition. Yeah. Nice products. They're not selling. Right. So, and it's not even that it's like good or bad. It's just, Hey, like, before we could list a flip, have it under contract in a week. And, you know, that saves you however many days and getting your money back. Right. And now we're like, Hey, we're at 30 days. And I'm like, I texted our agent this morning. I'm like price drop everything. Cause like we have all these houses coming in and I need to sell stuff. So for us right now, it's trying to figure out what is the new normal in seven, eight, whatever percent interest rates. Like people are still buying. I mean, buyers are picky as fuck right now. 
Like we had one last week that was like, oh, I smelled the, the brand new carpet and we didn't like it. And I'm like, is this like real life? Like, what are we doing here? So for us, it's trying to figure that out right now. Like if we're flipping, like, does that take 10 months instead of four? You know, like, what does that look like? And then the question I have for you, that's, you know, a question for us is like, when does it make more sense to wholesale everything? Like, yeah. you know, like, cause we're always like, cool, we can wholesale this for 20. We can flip it, make 50. Normally we'd say flip it. But I'm like, if I can wholesale two or three in that same time period, maybe the answer is wholesale. You know, that these are like internal things that we're trying to figure out. Cause like, you feel like you're leaving so much money on the table if you wholesale. But if I get 200 grand back next month and don't have to like wait three months to get that kind of like that. So I don't know. I mean, that's where we're trying to figure things out now. And I guess I'm I'm just curious, you know, what's your criteria for flip, wholesale, wholesale? What does it look like? The right person, at least now, because I used to think that same thing. And I still think it's true depending on the deal. I think it's all deal dependent and then business. Dependent. But I look at, so I'll give you an example. Now there's a property that I'm probably going to wholesale for 30,000 that if I flipped it, I'd make 50, right? 50 grand, which is a 20 K leave money on the table. But that 30 grand would come in this month, right? that 50 grand would probably close in December or January. So the way that I look at the, the wholesale model, the first thing I look at is where are we at from a current revenue standpoint based on the bills that are going out? And yeah, how, what is the business name? Yep. How much value, the velocity, how much, ironically, that's our company name, how much <laughs> that revenue bring to us today? And then I look and I say, if we were to flip this property, how much capital is it going to require from a lender? And what is the reasonable chance that it sells at the number we think it's going to sell for with the least amount of resistance, right? So I'm looking at that number hard now. And if, if I'm looking at the property and I know I can take an assignment for 18 grand, or I can maybe flip it for 35 grand, but I know it's going to be a rocky road to the closing table flipping it, and it's going to require a bunch of drama with contractors, I'm wholesaling that deal without even thinking about it. Assuming like I'm closing on it no matter what, like whether it's yeah, 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 you're not leaving the seller hanging, but like I'll just yeah, leave. I got gotcha. you. If we we have a new rule we just made, actually, there's a lawsuit that I might be getting served. Hopefully, it goes away. But we didn't disclose to the seller we were wholesaling the property, and the property burned down. And she's trying to point the finger at us to to say that we caused the fire, which there's no evidence that we caused the fire because like. I have all the data, but that's a different story for a different day. But we're basically, when we commit to a house, it's one of two things. We're buying the house no matter what, whether we wholesale it or close it. If we don't plan to close it and we only want to wholesale it, we will tell the seller we're assigning it. And that's the only way the deal is going to be successful. So they know in advance what their risks are. But to go back to the cash thing, I'm just looking at like, how much value will this assignment fee bring to our company currently? And if we're sitting well on cash and I like we have a lot of reserves in the marketing account, I may flip that property if we don't if we couldn't use the money. But if we have like a bad month or a bad cash cycle or something, and I know that like 15 or 18 grand will actually help move the needle based on our overhead, I'll probably do that assignment because there's just less complexity too. Because I've, I've always found with flips like, yeah, you can make more money, but like if you have a bad contractor or the contractor has a bad month or something or his crew clocks out, like, you know, your deal could take an extra two months to complete. And now that costs you two months of carrying costs. And then maybe they didn't do a good job. And now the product isn't as good and it doesn't sell that well. So there's so many more variables with flips. Oh, for sure. For yeah. sure. I've also found, at least in this market, that the wholetailing is a lot harder to do now because the buyers are so more picky. So like back in 2021 and 22, before the market corrected in mid-year, you could put a piece of shit on the market and it would sell because the interest rates were 3%. But now, like if you're trying to wholetail a house without doing any work, 
unless you're pricing it super, super, super well, it's probably going to sit because at least in New York, like the retail ARV market and then the as is wholesale market were like this for a while. But now yeah. it's like this. And if someone's not watching the YouTube video, my, my hands are shifting. Down, <laughs> right. So I've just found it a lot harder to put a house on the market as is without doing any work to it because the buyers have to pay that interest rate now. So we're just kind of renovating a lot of stuff now. Like we're really, we really don't clean anything out and list it. It's just not really a good strategy because if that doesn't sell now, then it was like an expired listing. And then it's kind of got this tainted view to it. So we just kind of make a decision like what work are we going to do to this house? And if it's going to be a 60K rehab, we're going to do it. If it's going to be a 20K rehab, we're going to do it. But you got to align yourself with a really good broker because I've had some horrendous brokers this year. I'm not going to mention names as much as I'd fucking love to. And really just my fault as the owner, but put us in terrible positions as owners. And, and like just lessons I've learned from that alone. I mean, that could be a whole mini book. But that's, I guess my answer to your question is you got to really look at your cash position and see how much value that revenue in 20 or 30 days will bring compared to waiting 45 to 60 days, because that's how a lot of flippers go broke is they, they, they have all this pipeline revenue, but they have all these bills going out. By the time they get that revenue in three months, like they have no money in their account. And then they're like, back. yeah, to you can't, you can't pay your bills with equity. <laughs> Yeah, you can't you can't eat equity either. I've tried to eat it. It's very hard. Yeah, to. yeah, and and along those lines too, I think the 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 comment about brokers is or realtors, whatever they are, wherever you are, is making sure that you're like aligning on like what like what your you know goal with the house is too. Because like we like have to remind our agents like, hey, I'm not trying to squeeze every dollar out of this. I'm trying to sell it. My I'm trying to get an offer the first week it's on the market. Like. We have enough margin that we can do that. Like, I'm not like, hey, I've lived here 20 years. This is like my the only thing I have. Like, get me top dollar. It's like, no, get me offers. And then a lot of what we're doing now, which I'm sure you're doing too, is like, we're looking really specifically in neighborhoods too. Like, we're taking on a flip. Like, I want it to be somewhere with low days on market. I want to see what, if there's 10 houses listed that are similar, I'm probably like, eh. Even if stuff's selling quick, I'm like, I don't want to be one of 10 choices. I want to be like one of like two in the better better one, like a better price. Right. So there's just a lot of things we're looking at in more detail on, on flips now that, you know, a year ago, it's like, cool, just price it. Right. Like in comps don't freaking matter. It matters what's on the market and what people want to pay. Like, I'll give you an example. Uh, this guy brought me a house. Once again, it's my fault. I bought the house. So I'm taking full responsibility. Yeah. Brings me a house listed on the market in Pennsylvania. And he's like, oh, it's worth 220 all day long. And I'm like, I've never bought, like, it's like 20 minutes from Delaware. So like, I know Delaware pretty well, but this was like in Delaware County, Pennsylvania. So it's near Philly. And I'm yeah. like, yeah, you know, you're probably right there, but like it's listed on the market for like 150 or 160. I'm like, dude, if I buy this for like 145, like it's a skinny flip, dude. It's a skinny flip. And like at the time I'm like, yeah, we could get another flip going, whatever. So I get an AO at like one accepted offer for 146 and I close it. And I knew it was a skinny deal. And I'm like, ah, whatever. We'll just maybe make 15 grand if we're lucky, which is terrible thinking. Like never do that, people. So I buy the house. Contractor takes longer than we thought, which it is what it is. We go put this on the market. While this is going on, this same realtor lays an egg on another house in Delaware. Just lays a fucking egg, like shits his pants and doesn't clean up. Fire him off the listing. And I'm like, I, I, my response was, I don't reward bad behavior. That was literally my answer. I said, I don't reward bad behavior. Send me the fucking paperwork. You're gone. I said, I'll tell you what, though. I'll give you the other house because I gave you my word. So now he gets this listing in Pennsylvania. By the way, that other house we sell with another broker for 23 grand more than we would have got because the other guy didn't know what the fuck he was doing. So then Amazing. I get the original bad broker, the listing. He puts this on the market. He was trying to tell me it was worth 250. And I said, listen, dude, this is not worth fucking 250. So I'm like, we're selling this for 220. We're listing it or 219.9. 
He puts it on the market. He goes to the shore, gets drunk, no open houses, nothing, zero offers. And then I look at what we're competing with. And there's like five other houses that are cheaper. And I go, this is a problem. So I text him. I'm like, can you just drop the listing price to like 215? Drops it to 215, nothing. I go, okay, let's give this a week. Nothing, no offers, no showing, or barely any showings. Everyone's just complaining about the house. I say, please drop it to 210. It's at two or 209, nothing. And now I'm like, okay, now we're not selling it for 210. I said, here's the deal. I gave you a shot on this house because I'm a man of my word. If we don't have any offers by Tuesday at 10 a.m., I need the unconditional release paperwork to sign because you need to get you need to get out of here. At 9.57, he texts me the paper or he emails me the paperwork. I throw him off the listing. I find another realtor who sells all these houses in this area, which I should have done to begin with and not kept my word, which fuck that in some cases. So I call her up and I'm like, hey, I don't have a realtor on this house anymore. It was listed on the market. I'm baffled it hasn't sold because I'm looking at the data and it should sell for like 210. And she's like, well, mine's mine's in contract for 220 and we listed it at 199. So I think if we stage your house and we price it at 199, it will definitely get an offer on it. And I said, I agree with you. So she lists the house. I pay her more money in the commission because she actually knew what she was doing. We go right into contract within about a week at 199, shocker. And I'll probably lose 10 to 12 grand on that property. But the point I'm trying to make is never, ever, ever rely on a realtor to tell you their opinion of the value, especially in an area you're not familiar with, because that's going to cost me 10 to 12 grand. I should have said no to that deal, but I took his word for it because the numbers didn't seem terrible. But when we actually looked under the hood and saw what was really going on in that little subdivision, I was way off. And then I had another realtor tell me the truth, say, this is a 199 house based on the condition. And that's what it's selling for. So you got to be careful on who you work with. And you really, you know, as a business owner, you you got to be harsh with people sometimes. Like I'm, you know, I, I can't say I'm the nicest guy to deal with when people lie to my face, basically. I just don't have time for that shit. Yeah. And that kind of goes back to my rule on no one cares about your margins like you do. Nobody cares. Exactly. Whether it's employees, agents, you know, contract, no one cares. You know, it's like at the end of the day, like no one's going to care about your margins like you do. No one's going to, you know, take that into account. You know, that realtor want to get a sale, whatever, maybe a good intentions, maybe not. Who, who knows? Right. But like at the end of the day, like your margins don't matter to him the way they do to you, you know, suspicion on the buyer's agent because it was on the listed on the market. So he already got his four grand and walked out of there, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's just like, yeah, yep. man, you got to have the incentive. I found like, if you don't have like skin in the game, you know, it's hard to really give a shit, right? Like the realtor, if it sells, it sells, right? Like they have no, that's another thing. Like I, I, I and then there's other great realtors that I work with that are honest and they're, they're reasonable and they understand the market. They understand my objectives. They understand your objectives. Yeah. It, you know, it always is successful with them because they tell you the truth. Hey, what do you think this house is worth? I think, and I always tell a realtor, like a little cheat code here for people. If I bring a property to a realtor and I want them to list it for me or tell me what the value is, I never ask them directly. I say, Hey, I did some research on 123 Main. I think it'll probably sell for 250 to 270. What are your thoughts on that? Because then they can take my information and see that I'm not just using them for knowledge. And then they'll give me their opinion. And the good realtors will tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. And they say, yeah, I think it's more of a 240 house because of this. And if you want to sell it, I'd love to list it. I would probably do it at 239. And we try to get a bidding war. And when the realtors like sometimes disagree with you in the negative, that's a good sign because it means they don't really need your business. and They're not going to tell you what you want to hear as a flipper, at least. Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, I have, I have had good and bad experiences with agents, but I always look at the volume too. Like whether, you know, they're on the buying side or selling side of something we're selling. Like if I look at an agent and I know you do whatever, you know, whatever is a significant number of your market, 20, 30, 40, 50, 
houses a year, I generally know that you want it to get a closing and that you're going to, you know, figure out ways and solutions to get it there. Whether that's like when you're listing it for me, you're not going to like list it way too high just because I tell you to, because like you care about your integrity and it's not worth your time. Or, you know, on the selling side, like an agent that does one transaction a year, I don't know if they're going to blow it up the day of the final walkthrough because like, you know, they woke up late and they're in a bad mood, you know, like, but you can kind of tell like, not that like, that's the only thing, but if you do, if you do enough volume, you know, that at the end of the day, they're like, both their goals are to get it closed. Right. So that's one thing we look at a lot as like, cool. Like you've done a lot of transactions. You're probably like going to be reasonable. Cause so much of that too, is like on the, on the selling side is like setting up expectations with the buyers because they'll get an inspection and you know, the way they react with their clients to the inspection can be, Hey, like, here's some things we should be concerned about. You know, let's do X, Y, and Z where someone not experienced is like, Oh my gosh, it's the worst house I've ever seen. You should never buy it. You should never touch it. Nothing can make it better. Yeah. And then those, there's no recovering from. So agents matter so much in this business and I hate it, but good ones are life changers and bad, one. bad ones are a nightmare. There's a realtor. I'm going to drop her first name, not her last name. Genevieve in Delaware. The fucking worst buyer's agent I've ever fucking seen. I'm, <laughs> it's my show. I take all the risk with the liability here. <laughs> this fucking person blew one of my deals up when it didn't need to blow up. And the other genius agent that was representing me, the other prior hedge fund manager, had no idea how to communicate. And I told him, I said, listen, if this buyer doesn't want to buy the property, just try to flush it out of them like two weeks before closing, because then we'll just sell it to somebody else and you'll still probably get the listing. But he kept yes, yes manning me. And two days before closing, the buyers cancel. And then I refused to give them their deposit back for a month. And I said, this could have been prevented if you took my fucking advice, because I want this deal to close just as much as you do. And the problem is that agents who don't have volume, like you said, they don't have the experience and the savvy that they would have had with the volume in order to handle the situation. They get so emotionally involved in deals. And that's why deals don't close is because people's emotions get in the way of logic. And it just makes... And, well, they and they're, they're just clinging on to that one or two deals. You know, it's like in the wholesale world, like if you're doing you know, you're doing five deals a month, like, and one falls through, it's whatever. If you're doing one deal a month and one falls through, it's like your world's ending, you know? So it's the same thing with, you know, real estate transactions or with a realtor. It's like, you know, if they're doing other stuff, they're not like, Hey, I'm not paying my Mercedes unless this one closes, you know? So definitely the one that's definitely one of them. I'm just like, yeah, it's so true, man. If, if they don't need that deal to close, they're going to perform a lot better versus if they're just, oh, absolutely that thing for their, yeah, their next fucking rent payment, which is, is what it is. Like you got to align yourself with pros. And, you know, I, I think if you're, I, I'm not a realtor myself, but if I were a realtor, I would want to work with investors because they bring repeat business and they generally are less emotional than consumers. Like you, you know, you're going to have business every month, you know, they're going to be somewhat easy to deal with if you're the right realtor. And, you know, they can have friends and then you can list their properties and you only need five or six clients to do 60, 70 houses a year. So you think like realtors would all flock towards flippers, but they don't, right? I mean, some of them don't, but it's interesting. Yeah. You don't work- our, our agents we, we work with are great. I mean, they're, I mean, we, I don't like, we pay them 1%, which I would gladly pay them more because they're good. But, you know, it's like, she knows we're like pretty reasonable. She knows we want to get houses closed. She knows that each month we're going to give her one or two. And then like, anything that comes in that we refer to her, like she's going to get a normal 
full commission on if we have friends or family or whatever, you know? So it's like, it's not that much, it's not a ton of work, right? It's not like we're a pain in the ass to deal with. It's like, cool, what do we need to pay to make this go away? You know? So it's like, exactly. I, I just know, ask the buyer what they want. And if it's up, if it's over three grand, if it's under three grand, you already have my answer. Like, I don't want to fucking deal with it. Yeah. yeah, I'm like, yeah, don't like, don't like, don't involve me in this. Like, if we need contractors, we'll fix it. But like, but I mean, you, we establish those relationships with agents where it's like, we should be your easiest clients is our goal. You know, it's like consistent business. You know, we're not going to fight you over dumb shit. And, you know, we're going to keep bringing you stuff. So our agents, I mean, they, they do a lot for, you know, 1% or one and a half or whatever it ends up being. They're great to work with. And 1% adds up if you do 35 deals a year, you know? Oh, for sure. For sure. Man, I could talk to you for hours. We'll start to wind down the podcast. You have a great Instagram account that I want pe more people to see. You put out great content. I love your little subject to knock deals. I, I love that stuff. So if people wanted to, number one, check out your company, give the website. And then number two, if they wanted to follow you personally on social media, what's your social media handle on Instagram? Yeah. Stay off my website unless you're selling me your house. Uh no, but... uh no, I'm our company's Murphy Homebuyers. We're in San Antonio. And then my Instagram is just Aaron.Beal, B-I-H-L. And yeah, so kind of stepping that up. We hired, you know, a social media person. And I don't know where we're going with it, but you know, it, I just feel like it's very necessary. So, you know, I try to help people a lot where I'm not selling anything. Maybe that comes in the future. I don't know. I, I'm sure you've read Hermosi's new book, but F. when when his big thing is like literally you can't put out enough content. Like, that's what I'm telling our like social media person. I'm like, 10 posts a day is the goal. Let's get there, you know? And all these people, it's like, I hate it. It's very much love hate, which I'm sure you get that. I just think it's really valuable. So trying to grow that, trying to, you know, provide value and just be really honest and open about what this business actually looks like. Because in the last year or so, when things have gotten tougher, all the gurus are coming out. Everyone's selling courses because they can't do the business. So we're all kind of seeing that. So we try to just be really honest about what we're doing, ups and downs, you know, good and bad. And it's a lot of fun. I love it, man. I love your stuff. And and that's why, you know, your, your socials are growing because you actually put out real content that's valuable and then not like typical fluff you see out there that's just so general. Like I, I see a lot of good intentional advice that's not practical, right? It's like, oh, in theory, you should have a high return on ad spend and a quick cash conversion cycle. Of course that makes sense. But what happens when there's a title issue? What happens when your sales guy quits? What happens when, you know, you're like, it, there's so much stuff out there that's just theoretical and you're putting out practical stuff. So keep doing the good stuff. We'll make sure you have your, we have your communication lines, the website and the social profile. Leave him a Google review if you can. That does add a lot of value because that helps everyone's SEO and GMB page. So Aaron, buddy, it's always a pleasure talking with you. I'm looking forward to this thing going out and having the masses hear it. Yeah, appreciate it, dude. Thank you for listening to an episode of the Real Estate Investing Fast Track. I hope you got a lot of value from this specific episode. And there are a few takeaways that you're able to gather from this to implement in your business so you can be a more successful real estate investor. So if you did get value from the show, if you could do me a favor and leave me a review on iTunes, it would really mean a lot to me. That's how we keep growing the show and getting great guests is because people see the reviews, they see that we have a high quality show and they want to contribute as a guest. So that would be great. Also, if you got value, if you could share the show on social media, that would be great because that is how people see this besides the reviews. So once again, if you did get value, if you could do me a favor and leave me a review on iTunes and share the show on social media, it would really mean a lot to me and I'll see you on the next episode.